after Xi Jinping took power in 2012, we actually could see a lot of connections in terms of parallels of how elements of the Chongqing model were being absorbed into CCP's broader、uh, political style of governing. What was Boise Lai's Chongqing model, and how does it help explain Xi's China? Zhang Yueran, a sociology PhD student at Berkeley, joins China Talk to discuss.、Uh, Yueran, welcome to the podcast. So, what does most Chinese analysis miss that a sociological approach helps with? Let me discuss this with a concrete example, because since 2013, we all know and see that the, there has been a pretty dramatic political transformation going on in China in terms of the CCP's political style, governing style. Which people have been saying is getting more repressive, more authoritarian, more ideological, more focused on shaping and guiding public sentiment, and less tolerant of political dissent. People have been saying those changes have been happening in China since 2013, basically under Xi Jinping's leadership. And the question, of course, is how to explain this. Pretty dramatic political shift, and and most conventional analysis put two answers on the table. Basically, the first answer centers on Xi Jinping, the individual himself. Right? It explains the political shift through Xi Jinping's personal background, his psychology, his personality, so on and so forth. And the second answer is basically like what we are seeing. Since 2013, is basically a revival of what the CCP has been doing in its Maoist years. Those are the, like the two mainstream ways of an- analyzing China's political shift, a post 2013 shift. And I think what those analyses myth, which a sociological approach can help with, is that we really need to look at the structural factors that were confronting. The CCP around 2012, 2013, around the leadership turnover, in order to really make sense why we are seeing what we are seeing after that leadership turnover, and in order to do that, we not only need a sociological perspective, but also a historical perspective. Namely, we really need to look at the specific political happenings or the political drama that has been happening in the. Years preceding 2012. Good thing we have you on because that's what we're going to do for the next hour. Let's kick it off. Bo Xilai, who is he? So he's what people would call a red princeling, which means his father was a very experienced revolutionary from the CCP's early years, and his father rose to very high ranks within CCP during the Maoist era, and then he. Entered the political establishment, and then he entered the official rank himself. And Bo Xilai first made like a, a national political profile when he served as the mayor of Dalian, which was a city in China's northeast. And then after that, he entered the central state and became the minister of commerce. So,、uh, in in both of these positions, he was quite good at catching a media limelight, and showing his political competence and also his political ambition. And in 2007, he was assigned as Chongqing's municipal party secretary. In which position he started to initiate a series of very transformative. Political practices through Chongqing's municipal state, and those political practices were commonly called the Chongqing model. And that was、right. the moment when he really started to make huge political、uh, shockwaves, both in China and also outside China. Great. So let's talk through what he did and what the sort of interpretations, both sort of classical liberal as well as left wing narratives, around what the Chongqing model was and what it stood for. The kind of Classical liberal narrative, which was like very popular during the time when the Chongqing model was unfolding, basically saw the model as a dramatic expansion of the coercive and the repressive power of a authoritarian state. Basically, because 
the liberals were emphasizing how Chongqing, Chongqing's municipal government were was forcing people to participate in all sorts of political activities, political spectacles, such as public gatherings to sing so-called red songs, which were basically classic songs from the Maoist era, or to celebrate uh, red political symbols, so on and so forth, and also how uh, Chongqing's municipal government was cracking down civil society groups, lawyers, entrepreneurs in the name of striking black gangsters. So that was the elements of the Chongqing model that the liberals were seeing, and, and they emphasized how coercive and repressive that was. And on the other hand, the left-wing narrative was basically saying we should look at how the Chongqing's municipal government was trying to redistribute wealth from the wealthy to the poor, and how government was trying to explore a new developmental path that was more equitable, more economically just, so on and so forth. So those are basically the two popular versions of how Chongqing model was understood. And they were diametrical, but both problematic. You don't necessarily buy either of these narratives. And the way you came about your own theory of the case is a little curious roundabout way of looking at real estate tax policy. So tell us how this came to be your key to creating a different framework for what was going on with our friend Bo. Yeah, the the case of taxing private home ownership was interesting because it actually pro- provided a window for us to really look at one policy which Chongqing implemented together with another municipal government. So that is a way to set up basically a comparison. And I would argue only through that, that kind of comparison could we really dig out what was unique and central about the Chongqing model. So what I did discover was that basically starting from 2011, Chongqing and Shanghai, those two municipalities, started to implement a tax on private home ownership, basically at the same time. But even though those two cities started this policy at the same time, the concrete ways in which they enacted this policy, this tax, were really different. I don't think I could go into the specific details of how the tax was designed, but broadly speaking, there were three points of difference. So first, in terms of who were being targeted by this tax. So the, 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 the Chongqing's municipal government very unambiguously targeted the most wealthy property owners in the city. But Shanghai's government didn't really touch the most wealthy, but instead targeted the kind of the upper middle class or the kind of the moderately affluent strata within uh, middle income layers. So secondly, in terms of how the local government were framing this tax. So in Chongqing, the tax was framed as a redistributive measure in terms of transferring wealth from the rich people to the poor people to the ordinary people to achieve some degree of redistributive justice. But in Shanghai, the government used very kind of technical terms in order to frame the tax as basically a technical and economic intervention in the housing market in order to tame the housing market boom. So the tax was framed in very technical uh, language in terms of how to adjust supply and demand of housing, so on and so forth. So thirdly, in terms of how the tax was concretely carried out, we actually see the Chongqing government when the officials were trying to collect the tax on those rich homeowners. The officials paid a lot of attention to mobilizing popular pressure, to inciting ordinary people to put popular pressure on those rich homeowners in order to, to force those rich homeowners to comply. So basically, the whole tax collection affair was turned into a, a, a nexus 
for mass mobilization. But in Shanghai, the government was trying to enact this tax as quietly as possible, in the sense that they really wanted to direct the potential taxpayers into kind of reacting this tax in a very economic and individual way in order to, you know, make those taxpayers respond to the tax by thinking how to rearrange my plan of property purchase in order to maximize my economic gain under this new economic parameter uh, created by the tax, not in any kind of political manner responding to or protesting against the state. Those are the main differences in which we see different political styles in those two cities. And clearly, the Chongqing government was really trying to use the tax as a tool to really show the masses that the government was pursuing a economically just and redistributive developmental model and also the government was really trying to use the tax as the opportunity for mass mobilization. But in Shanghai, what we are seeing is that the government is doing everything it could to depoliticize both the tax itself and also taxpayers. So I think here, through this comparison, we can develop an alternative understanding of what the Chongqing model essentially was. Because both the liberal and the left narratives didn't really do a good job explaining why the Chongqing government would initiate this tax initiative and also why the government was enacting the tax in this particular way. Do you think it's worth doing the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren comparison on this or do you think it's, that's a little too far off? Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think it would be interesting to do that comparison. If you want. All right. So I'll do it then. The Chongqing model is excited to soak the rich and point them out as being like parasites on society, whereas Shanghai is more not trying to rock the boat and just cool down its its real estate market. Yeah. And I think one thing I would add is that clearly what Chongqing was doing was extraordinary. But in the case of Shanghai, there was nothing, I think there's nothing special to it. So what Shanghai was doing in the case of taxing private home ownership was representative of the typical or the conventional approach the Chinese government has been pursuing a lot of uh, reform policy issues in the reform era. So this sense that we are not sucking the rich, we are not politicizing, we are framing everything as economic, technical, and apolitical. We are trying, you know, to just make people think of themselves not as political subjects, but as economically rational subjects, maximizing uh, personal gains. So all of that stuff, which we are seeing in the case of Shanghai, was representative of what the Chinese government has been doing uh, in the reform era since the 1990s. Sure. So what does this tell us? So I think when you really think about the case in relationship to the to mainstream ways of understanding the Chongqing model, as I just mentioned, then the two mainstream understandings both fell short. Because if we follow the liberals to understand the Chongqing model as just coercive expansion of state power, then we, we, we couldn't understand why the government was doing this tax after all. And if we follow the left narrative, seeing the Chongqing model as a project of economic redistribution, uh, a project to achieve economic justice, then one thing that became very puzzling is that when I was doing research, I observed that the Chongqing's municipal government devoted a lot of resources showing that it was trying to collect this tax in a very serious way. But the actual amount of money collected on this tax was very minimal. And actually, the, I think the resources spent on collecting the tax actually outweighed the actual amount of money being collected. The actual degree of redistribution achieved under this initiative 
was not that much. What, what this shows is that the material degree of economic redistribution was not much of a concern in the case of the Chongqing model. It was not, it, it was not much of a concern to the municipal leaders. So what the, the municipal leaders really cared about was the political, the symbolic, the mass mobilizing effect of this tax initiative. So I think following that logic, we could understand the Chongqing model first and foremost as a project of mass political mobilization. And this project of mass mobilization was really trying to draw the masses into believing a ideological vision that identified the municipal government and especially a charismatic state leader like Bo Xilai as the champion of the people. So I would say mass mobilization was what was central here. And it was really intended to develop a sense of collective identity between the people and the state by mobilizing the masses to actively participate in all sorts of political activities. And some of those activities were spontaneous, whereas most of those activities were orchestrated by the state. But the intention of political mass mobilization was very clear here. Given that framework, how does your idea of putting mass mobilization at the center of what was going on in, in, in Chongqing square with Bo's position in the horse race to become the next leader of China? So there's one very interesting and very crucial detail I learned during my research process, which is that kind of around late 2009 and early 2010, municipal officials, not Bo Xilai himself, but other municipal officials, started to reach out to the fiscal technocrats within the, the central state, saying our municipal government was really willing to experiment with this tax initiative. And then the response from the fiscal technocrats was somewhat skeptical in the sense that they were really worried what if the top national central leaders would not approve of Chongqing's plan, given, you know, Bo Xilai has many political enemies within the top national leadership. So that was the question the fiscal technocrats within the central state raised to Chongqing's municipal officials. And Chongqing's municipal officials responded by saying our top municipal leader had already considered that possibility and has already prepared accordingly. And the plan is that if the top national leadership was not willing to approve Chongqing's municipal government, then would publicly announce this plan to tax private home ownership to Chongqing's public. And the government was ready to rally a lot of popular support and to really show to the top national leadership how much support this initiative would have in order to push the top national leadership to approve of this plan. So that's what Chongqing's municipal officials were saying at that time. And this also turns out to be what the Chongqing's municipal government did it actually started to publicize this plan of taxing private home ownership way before it received official approval from the central state. So there was a kind of process in which the, the Chongqing's municipal government was mobilizing popular support on behalf of Bo Xilai in order to put pressure the top national leadership. And I think this is crucial because we all know Bo Xilai had some political enemies within the central political establishment, right? There, there have been some media reporting by, by international media outlets, and also there was a U.S. Department of State cable, which you can find on the WikiLeaks, which recorded the political information, the Department of State was gathering at that time, showing the same story. So basically, Bo Xilai had political enemies, 
and those and, and those people deliberately marginalized him, marginalized Bo Xilai in 2007 by assigning him to the post of Chongqing's municipal party secretary. Basically, in 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 the game of CCP's high politics, in this game of political competition, competing for CCP's highest political office, Bo Xilai was being marginalized, and he knew he was being marginalized. And launching this Chongqing model, this mode of mass popular mobilization, this project of building popular support on behalf of. Himself was a way for Bo Xilai to counter and pressure those political forces opposed to him within the political establishment. So basically, I would say, riding on popular momentum to disrupt the political establishment's conventional rules of the game represented Bo Xilai's attempt to find a path forward in a political competition that was stacked. Against him, yeah, and this to be clear, trying to mobilize popular support to get you into the highest office in the land is not something that was that has really been part of the CCP political lexicon for decades at this point. Yes, I would say the last person of in CCP's context, the last person who tried to do this before Bo Xilai was Mao himself. So basically, after the Maoist era, this mode of politics has ha, had never been tried again before Bo Xilai stepped onto the stage. And so the and then again to summarize the 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 whole tax story is just one of what probably are many examples of him. Doing things ahead of where Beijing wants him to be, being more aggressive and taking the sort of most populist line in order to both boost his popularity and do the thing where you've already put shovels in the ground. And once you once you do something popular, it would be very hard for Beijing to go back and say, "No, you can't do that." When there are you know tens of thousands of people in the street saying, "Hey, let's take down the gangsters, let's tax the rich, what have you." I I I don't think Bo Xilai was very serious about those governmental measures themselves, right? What he was really serious about was using those measures to mobilize popular support. So it's it's really about the political and the symbolic effect. And like this whole model of mass political mobilization worked in the sense that it did succeed. In building a lot of popular support for Bo Xilai, and that popular support remained even after Bo Xilai's political collapse. Actually, like、yeah. several international media outlets, their journalists went to Chongqing and did like random street interviews in Chongqing a couple years after Xilai's political downfall. And then their findings is from those random street interviews was that Bo Xilai still remained highly popular. So what Bo Xilai was doing under the name of the Chongqing model was indeed very effective in mobilizing the people and building popular support. Yeah, just hearing you tell this whole story, the echoes of Trump. And his whole insurgency, first to take over the GOP in 2016, and the kind of building of this white nationalist, like ultra right wing group, culminating, of course, in the in the Capitol riots of a few weeks ago. I think Bo played this game better、uh, than Trump has. It's scary to think what Trump, if he was a more skilled politician, would have been able to do. Over the past few years, with the playbook that he adopted, which you can see some echoes in the way in which Bo tried to raise his platform and make sure that he wasn't marginalized and forgotten, sent out to a second-tier city, which was presumably supposed to be his last job. Yeah, I think one really like obvious parallel is that, like in the case of the election in 2020, you know what Trump was doing after the election was he really、uh, serious about him. Not actually losing the election was he、uh, re- really he serious himself about like him actually winning the election? I I I think like what he was really serious about is actually seizing this opportunity to launch a whole series of efforts to mobilize his base to energize his base. 
So like whether he himself was convinced that he actually won the election or not was not much of concern to him. But like what was really key here is that this provided yet another very good opportunity for mass mobilization. So I think that was what made Trump comparable to Bo Xilai. And totally. then I think uh, then I think another kind of interesting observation we could make is that when people were talking about the rise of popular forces in contemporary politics, which is a very hot topic, both within scholarly circles and also public discussion, like people talk about Trump, Le Pen, UKIP, and Orban, Erdogan, Modi. Duterte. So th- those are the like the the figures people usually invoke when they talk about popular forces in contemporary politics. But basically, no one has included Bo Xilai in in this list of people. And I, I actually think if we include Bo Xilai in this discussion, then we can have some very interesting new observations and conclusions to make. So we have this pretty dramatic threat. To the way of politics in the CCP that Bo opposes, what lessons did she take from his model, and how did he try to distance himself in his governing style from what Bo did? As you mentioned, Bo did was threatening to the CCP's political establishment. Right, I'm not saying it's just a matter of Bo himself threatening other political competitors. I think this is a very important point. To keep in mind, like what was really threatening about Bo was not only like his own kind of position within the competition and how he was threatening other competitors, but the way he was competing in this political game was so heterodox, right? Like he was trying to bring popular energy to bear on CCP's high-level political competition. So that was made the entire way of competing so threatening because he was trying to channel popular energy on the grassroots, the this kind of like mass mobilizing forces, to disrupt the conventional ways of competing within the CCP's political establishment. So that constituted a political crisis. And that kind of underlined the whole political drama that unfolded in 2012, eventually causing Bo Xilai's downfall. But even though Bo Xilai was removed from office, his attempt at CCP's highest offices did not succeed. The popular energy he mobilized did linger on for a while. There were even like talks. Among Chongqing's ordinary citizens, about launching collective action to protest the central state in order to save Bo. So that were Chongqing's people's reactions on the ground. How to deal with this political crisis from the standpoint of the CCP? That was definitely a huge crisis that has to be somehow coped with. So connecting that. Background that context to what we actually have seen the CCP doing after Xi Jinping took power in 2012, we actually could see a lot of connections in terms of similarities, parallels of like how elements of the Chongqing model were being incorporated and absorbed into CCP's. Broader、uh, political style of governing, and which became much more widely used in Xi's new era. So great! So let's walk through some of those. Yeah, w- one thing that you know many people have noted is that basically since 2012, 2013, the CCP has both been much more skilled at and also paid much more attention to. Mobilizing popular sentiment, shaping popular sentiment, and also to mobilizing ordinary citizens to certain forms of political participation. So that has been much more of an emphasis than what the CCP has been、uh, doing in the preceding two decades. 
And also, we have been seeing how the CCP became much more sophisticated in terms of using digital means to mobilize the youth. And, and we we have also seen how the CCP became much more effective and creative in turning many young people into political subjects that strongly identified with the state. And those people were sometimes derisively called. The little pink. So the mass mobilizing side of the CCP ha- has become much more stronger, broadly speaking, since 2012, and that was a clear connection to what Bosilai was doing in Chongqing in the several years pre- preceding 2012. And in the post 2012 political order, we also see a kind of a greater role. Being played by ideological messaging, generally speaking, and also more emphasis on a singular charismatic leader. In this case, Xi Jinping, and also a much more closer intertwining of political participation and everyday life, especially with the the advent of things like apps on your cell phone, which made the intertwining of political participation and everyday life. All the more convenient. So all of which seems to have been taken from Bo's play,、uh, playbook in Chongqing. Even though at this moment I can only speculate, there does seem to have been a deliberate kind of learning process in which this variety of mobilization strategies that Bo pioneered or revived in Chongqing. Were being copied and consolidated by Xi's CCP after 2012. That said, though, of course, there were things that were scary to Xi that he really didn't want. So he didn't take everything from Bo, right? What were the aspects of the Chongqing model that that Xi decided he wanted to have nothing to do with? Within this whole package of Chongqing model, the CCP under Xi Jinping's leadership adopted some elements of this package, but. Discarded certain other elements that were like really threatening to the CCP's elite interest. So, for example, the Chongqing model mobilized the masses by really emphasizing a ideology of economic egalitarianism, right? Like they were really trying to pose the government as redistributing wealth from the wealthy to the poor, and that. Ideological message of economic egalitarianism was absent in CCP's political mobilization package in Xi Jinping's era. So that's one thing. And then another element is that Bo Xilai was, of course, trying to mobilize people mostly through organizing the masses into political participation of activities orchestrated by the state. But at the same time, he was also tolerant of some political activities, collective actions, and protests that were spontaneously organized by people and actors in the, on the grassroots, and try to take advantage of those spontaneously organized collective action and protest in order to really pose himself as someone who was listening to the grassroots. Standing together with the grassroots, but that tolerance of spontaneously organized collective action was also absent under Xi Jinping's CCP. So those elements that were mostly subversive, potentially speaking, of CCP's conventional established elite interests were discarded. So this learning process was very selective. Can you talk in particular about Xi's model of anti-corruption as compared to Bo's? In this case, I think there are both similarities and differences. One thing that Bo's anti-corruption and Xi's anti-corruption shared in common was that, first, in to some extent, the charismatic state leader tried to pose himself as a defender of. People's interest against some corrupt elites. So this political posing was very prominent in both Chongqing model and also Xi's anti-corruption campaign. And also both of those anti-corruption campaigns 
really emphasized a kind of like collaborational aspect in which the state was trying to encourage people on the grassroots to provide hints and clues to the state in terms of revealing those corrupt elites. So this co- this collaborational element was also there in terms of the state was saying anti-corruption was only achieved because the state and society were collaborating. But at the same time, there, there, there was one thing Bo Xilai was doing in Chongqing that was not very prominent in Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, uh, which was to really mobilize the masses to publicly celebrate the crackdown of corrupt elites. So, for example, there was one former police chief in Chongqing, which was prosecuted as a kind of a protection umbrella for some gangster groups. And this police chief was eventually sentenced to death. And right after he was executed, people in Chongqing started to put banners on the street, lit firecrackers, and also marched on the street (laughs) to celebrate his execution. And so here you can very clearly see the anti-corruption campaign was closely intertwined with mass mobilization. But Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign didn't go that far in regard to mobilizing the masses. It's the more we talk about Bo, the the more the Duterte parallels come to the fore. And the other thing that sort of came to my mind thinking about this is the fact that Trump really teased this, right, during his campaign, the whole drain the swamp initiative. And the fact that he just didn't go down that route at all is something remarkable. I think what what this kind of really shows is that Trump was not willing or able to fully embrace a mode of populist leadership to really go to a very high level of mass mobilization or kind of like a prioritizing mass mobilization or anything else. So I think in, in the case of Bo Xilai, we can clearly see how he was putting mass mobilization into everything he was doing. Trump at the end of the day thought it was really cool that like former Goldman Sachs people would work for him. And that's not something that had any you know interest in is that sort of co-optation. Though anyways, just stepping back a little bit, thesis you have about how sort of the depoliticization post-1989 opened the space for uh, Bo to do his thing in the first place. So the, the, the Chongqing model was a huge counterpoint to depoliticizing mode of governing in the sense that the Chongqing model was really trying to bring people in to political activities, to political participation in order to develop a sense of political identity. Whereas what Shanghai represented, this more kind of mainstream approach, was really to make people not care about politics as much as possible, to really make people see themselves as economic subjects as much as possible. So here I think what this contrast shows is the relationship between the Chongqing model and the broader political change the CCP has been embracing in, in two decades, basically between 1989 and 2010. I think it is fair to summarize the political transformation the CCP has been initiating in those two decades as two different sides. The, the first is like a depoliticizing side in which the CCP was trying to create widespread political apathy by framing both its policy actions and ordinary citizens as apolitical. This is the thing I, I, I was just uh, talking about. And on the other hand, the CCP also tried to push forward a set of structural changes in the economy that created a particularly brutal version of capitalism. So there was both depolitization and also capitalism. And both of those two things gave rise to deep contradictions. So on the one hand, the CCP's depoliticizing tendency created a void in which 
people's underlying desire for meaningful political participation remained unfulfilled. At the same time, the version of capitalism the CCP instituted kind of in, engendered increasingly uh, appalling economic inequality. So I think those contradictions were exactly what provided uh, the exploitable openings for something like the Chongqing model and enabled it to succeed in winning so much grassroots support. So basically combining mass mobilization with egalitarian ideology, the Chongqing model quickly garnered enough popular momentum to appear threatening to the CCP's political establishment. So re- responding to, the, to this crisis, Xi Jinping's post-2012 regime had to selectively incorporate many elements of the Chongqing model into the CCP's governing style. So in a sense, the political transformation under Xi, therefore, were at least in part a kind of indirect and unintended consequence of depoliticizing capitalistic order that characterized the two reform decades between 1989 and 2010. So I, I would say that's like how we could put the entire story in a more kind of historical perspective. Into this void that she has attempted to fill but has not completely succeeded in doing, we come to the summer of 2018. So what happened in Shenzhen that got the party so upset? In the JSIC technology factory in Shenzhen, in the summer of 2018, there was a unionization drive going on. So basically, some workers in the factory started a campaign to form a union, not an independent union, but a union affiliated with China's official trade union system, the ACFTU, and they started to gather signatures on their unionization petition. And they were found out by the employer, and they received very harsh retaliation and firing in response. And responding to that repression, these worker activists started to stage a public protest in front of the the employer and also in front of the police station. And then they received even harsher crackdown. So basically they were detained by the state. And then after that, there started an even bigger support group, the Solidarity Group, where many uh, young leftist students and activists from all over China came to Shenzhen to stage solidarity actions. And that became very big news. Let's take a bit of a step back. So who were these young university-educated Marxists, and what does Marxist ideology look like in the Xi era? What was such a big deal about this? At the moment when the, the solidarity actions were taking place, what was peculiar about it was that many people were like holding uh, Mao's portrait as part of their protest. And they were using Maoist slogans and professing loyalty to Mao when they were chanting uh, stuff during their protest. So that was like what made this case of labor contention different from other episodes of labor contention that happened in the Peel River Delta, because this like a Maoist connection was really rare. So that was what people find shocking at that time. But then later, about a year later, people started to find out that, oh, actually, the worker activists leading the unionization drive were part of a Maoist activist network that deliberately sent them into the factories to organize co-workers and agitate towards collective action. So in a sense, this was not a genuine labor action that was the work of a group of very highly dedicated Maoist activists. 
and those activists were connected with other activists who formed this、uh, larger Jacek solidarity group, staging all those Maoist-tuned solidarity actions. So then people started to really see, oh, there was a very highly organized Maoist activist networks composed of both. People who are more like from the intellectual backgrounds, highly educated, and also people who are more from a a a a workers' background, and that was really shocking when people find out it was a very highly organized series of events. Can you talk a little more about sort of the ideology of this young nascent Marxist movement? They embraced a Maoist ideology. But I guess in this case, we need to realize that at the core of this ideology was a, a contrast between the Maoist era versus the contemporary、uh, CCP. Basically, these activists were saying the Maoist era or Mao's political ideal represented real socialism, which culminated. Into the Cultural Revolution, and that was the revolutionary guide towards socialism. But after Mao died, the CCP betrayed Maoist ideal and embarked on capitalist restoration. So the the contemporary CCP was capitalistic and basically against everything that Mao represented. So that was their analysis of. The contemporary political landscape, and the political project that outlook leads to is really like a project of thinking about how to overthrow the the contemporary CCP in order to make real again Mao's revolutionary ideal. So why do you know a few dozen very well educated young people taking this line? Cause such a such a strong reaction. Like, what what about this line of thinking is so threatening? Yeah, I guess for, for, first of all,、uh, I should clarify that not everyone in this Maoist network was like highly educated. There were people who were from a a, a workers' background, but yes, many members of this Maoist activist network were from China's most prestigious universities. Like、uh, the Peking University (PKU), and that was also part of why many media outlets were paying so much attention to this network, of course. And this ideology was threatening, first of all, because it unambiguously advocates for opposition to the CCP. Right? It was it was saying the CCP betrayed socialism and it should be overthrown, basically. And secondly, like. Both people who are more from a highly educated background and also people who are more from a a a workers background, they joined forces together in this network in a very organized way, and both the degree of organization achieved within this network, and the very fact that people who are from intellectual and workers backgrounds. Fused with each other in this network, represented a political threat to the CCP. Do Do you have any thoughts, Yuran, on like how the CCP has tried to neuter and bring Marxist、uh, analysis and Marxist departments within Chinese universities to to counteract this line of thinking? One thing that is in- interesting to follow is that occasionally the CCP has been taking a Like anti-capitalistic tone, like in their action and the propaganda. Right. One prominent example was what the CCP、uh, has been doing recently to Ma Yun and his、uh, financial corporation. Yes, so- sometimes the CCP was trying to frame itself as standing against capitalist interest and to defend the interest of ordinary people. And at the same time, it was also instituting Marxist ideological education in China's schools and universities, and it has been paying much more attention of making sure 
the ideological message propagated in universities stayed closely to their official line. So I would say there was both the ideological propaganda component and also taking seemingly anti-capitalistic measures component. It's interesting because this critique is not just held within a few dormitories at Beida, right? Like you were talking about the whole Mayun anti-monopoly thing, and when you look at the comment sections of the Billy videos and the articles on 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 WeChat about this sort of push, there there are comments that are basically saying these corporations are screwing us. We need to bring power back to the people what have you, that have thousands and thousands of likes. So it's not as the amount of people who are willing to take trains all the way down to Shenzhen from Beijing and risk their entire lives and futures. There aren't that many of those people, but the narrative does have some broader resonance for sure. So it's obvious that in today's China, there's widespread, broad and general anti-capital sentiment being circulated. But, but then the question is, how does that sentiment relate to the state? Right? Because many people do believe that, yes, the state should step in to, to monitor and control capital. Right? So it's like the state is defending our interests against capital uh, encroachment. And that, was, uh, and that is the direction the state is trying to channel the anti-capital sentiment towards. But, but the people who actually took the trains to Shenzhen and the people who were part of the, the Maoist net network were actually you know, trying to develop both a very anti-capital, anti-state analysis in saying that what really enabled the origin of capitalism in China is the action of the CCP, the action of the state. And it is this entire political order that should be abolished. That is the difference. And of course, the CCP does not want the anti-capital sentiment circulating right now to develop towards that subversive direction. So where does the Chinese labor movement go next, given the, the ferocity in which they've been cracked down on in the past few years? Yeah, the, uh, as you implied, after the, the, the JSIC incident in 2018, there has been a, a, a much kind of broader wave of crackdown on uh, labor activists and labor NGOs in general in China. And right now, it, it, it's really difficult the, in terms of how labor activists could survive and continue doing what they have been doing. But this also gives people an opportunity to take a step back, to sit down and reflect what has been happening regarding Chinese labor in the past decade and where should people go. And one thing that people have been discussing is like how we could, through more grassroots organizing, build a more elaborate network connecting different localities where labor was concentrated and also connecting different workplaces so that we could have more structure to, to the labor movement, right? Because there has been a near consensus among China's labor activists that the Chinese labor movement has been both fragmented and sporadic, right? Like labor unrest has broken out every now and then in Chinese factories but it has been hard to imagine how to channel it into some sort of enduring organizing project. So in order for that enduring organizing project to appear, people, activists, have to build structure for it. And now the question is how to build this structure. I, I, I don't think anyone really has answers to this question, but this is like the direction many people's thinking are heading to. Yuran, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you. Like, ooh, bass, so long with the toe, huh? Xiang Yue, well, let me know, huh? Hurl a lamp, go ahead, straight.
so I want maybe yo Shout to me what to say What the shell need that pay Ni shang yao the wood yo What shang yao the need to make Tar she shang go these the need of hand me the ease Yeah double fighting good these the house of my calling your cheese Cut out your side is a cheese Sun only boss comes out with the cheese What put it down in the sheets the swap below my fans of cut the police Yeah I know you doubt be so you joke us about
不出来。我嘹亮的心里却藏着不满，我嚣张的是肯定让你遭殃。前来的路，一问胜负感刀上。天老天黑，全貌都满露脸。光是天赋就够老子吃饱。天空都在老子向前覆片。来的满脸死心，老子不告。可别连时间都多个味我出国先备好支票本。我不在乎你那两个字只有碾压让老子上样。